Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Fighting in the War Rooms Top. 10 movies of 2021 podcast part two in case you're just uh, catching up and have skipped 10 through 5 for some reason i mean your prerogative let's catch up with a little bit of where we are each of your hosts have brought 10 movies in a round robin fashion we've been counting down from 10s to 1 we went from 10 to 5 last week uh let's recap that here in our 10s me dave gonzalez had Tan, Patches had Zola, Katie had Tick Tick Boom, and David had Red Rocket. At nine, Katie had Red Rocket. Dave, me, had Coda. Patches had Barb and Stargo to Vista Del Mar, and David had Saint Maud. At number eight, I had Petite Maman. Patches had No Sudden Move. Katie had The Lost Daughter, and David had Licorice Pizza. At number seven, Patches and I both had Passing. Katie had West Side Story, and David had Pig. And at number six, our conclusion last week, uh, I had The Lost Daughter, Patches had Licorice Pizza, Katie had Come On, Come On, and David had Petite Maman. We're back to close out uh, the final films uh, here in this conclusion episode. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. We don't have an intro because we recorded this all in one go. So let's flash back to some very tired hosts who have already been uh, discussing their favorite movies of 2021 for like an hour and a half. And here we go. It's time for number fives. Um, uh, now, is uh, fives start a lot like the tens here, but I'm going to be the first, but we're still talking about Tick, Tick, Boom in its yeah. highest ranking yeah. here on this. This Somehow is I did my... not put this on my list. And I, I, Are I you wearing like your Moondance Diner sweatshirt right betrayal. now? No, the boots. It's in a different room. I haven't like gone. Le- <laughs> I haven't tried to find it in COVID creeping around my house. I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, not worth it. No. This was going to be my uh, New York musical spot, and I decided that it was going to go to one of them. So mm. I, I assessed in my brain, and here's the thing: in the Heights, big dancing. Like it a lot. I like how unabashedly um, earnest it is in itself uh, without having to be something like a remake, West Side Story, remake that, like Katie was saying, brings something, I think, new to the story. Great adaptation of the book. Some great fucking musical cinema uh, that made me realize that In the Heights was just playing it being big, and that's what big is sort of going to look like. And then Tick, Tick, Boom which is anchored around a fantastic Andrew Garfield performance. And all three of these movies have really horrid digital skies. So that also (laughs) ties them all together. Yeah. What the fuck? Even West Side Story. And I keep reading articles about how there's like no computer generated elements in it and whatnot. And I'm like, I I feel like that's definitely not true. And I was fighting against the best cinematography prize. I mean, I, I have a lot of positive feelings about the movie, but I felt like Janusz Kaminski and Spielberg's uh, collaboration had sort of been pushed past the limit with this one. Um, it all felt kind of unreal, and I'm just glad that David's pointing that out. 
So I think Tick Tick Boom has uh, the perfect balance, I think, of the uh, loving your Broadway roots, earnestness, um, slash actual um, improving uh, mildly upon the show that it is uh, representing. Uh, Tick Tick Boom just really works for me. And I think, because I think Katie mentioned earlier, it's part of that right on the tail end of a New York that I didn't get to experience, but... Mm-hmm. as uh living several years poor in New York something that uh felt authentic and uh fun and then probably also cuz i went to theater school in New York i feel like everybody every one of the characters in tick tick boom uh was a character that i was uh familiar with so tick tick boom uh beat the other new york musicals just because i liked it more i don't think yeah. i don't think there's any other reason so this is your spot for West Side Story or In the Heights. Hats off to you. It's just my spot for Tick, Tick, Boom. I think then, it needs yeah. the, the, the boost more, too. It's like there for people to watch. I guess In the Heights is, too. But I feel like I've been trying to sell people on Tick, Tick, Boom really hard. because it's, yeah. uh, it's not an obvious thing to watch like West Side Story, but it's so good. Right. And then I also think it takes a while uh, to settle into its own manic energy, uh, which I, I think is a byproduct of being part of that type of show where it was put on with like him and a band and two other singers. So he has to yeah. narrate and he has to jump back and forth. The movie has to settle into that, but somewhere around uh, the argument scene, I think it really clicks into balancing the show and the movie on its own terms uh, and grows from there. So yeah, while you're on Netflix, you can catch up with Patches' number five pick. It is the top placement of the lost daughter on this list. Yeah. Um, I'm with, all of the sentiments so far about Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, which seems astounding. I mean, it's yeah, another it's movie from an actor turned director that just feels like it steps out with real confidence. I feel like Re- Rebecca Hall with Passing and Gyllenhaal with this Elena Ferrante, a, a book I've not read. Um, I haven't read any of her books, but like there must be such a, an attachment to this text my understanding is that the book is really interior and this movie is too is the, the book is in the first person yeah. and that is always you know, i mean the, the movie feels like it's in the first person i think so much of that is a, is a testament to olivia coleman and like the close-up the power of a close-up on her eyes watching people on the beach scribbling down notes being an observer and like twitching in the right way and just the way maggie <laughs> gyllenhaal throws to the the flashbacks to jesse buckley and and just how much is going on how tortured she feels and when she escapes there's the scene where she goes on her work trip where her life really starts unraveling in a way that she likes which is like she's drinking champagne in her hotel room i katie i'll be honest i was thinking about you going on a work trip and being like i'm going to the <laughs> toronto <laughs> film festival i'm getting Hell a fucking champagne yeah. in my hotel I room i'm unhinged i can sleep Holy until we've eight. all been there i feel like we just all take a work trip let me. I have no bullshit. rituals. Um, yeah, no, you you feel that moment. But Peter Sarsgaard so isn't there to uh, ruin your life thoroughly. That's what. That's where we no, all get read lucky. You Italian uh, or <laughs> Irish poetry translated to Italian. Um, yes, uh, every word in this movie is is used delicately. It's used powerfully. Uh, it's sparse, but it's all uh, fueling this Olivia Coleman performance. I mean, I. It's interesting. Dakota Johnson is good in this movie, but it, it's not it's not hers to own. I don't think she even has like a big scene where she has to 
I mean, one of the interesting things is, oh, she is when sure she does. loses the, the daughter. The last, and when, the last scene in the movie. Oh, when she's exploding. Yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, their dynamic where she feels this attachment to her, where there's kind of like a mother-daughter vibe that they immediately spark to in the very short time that they know each other. And then just like the way that this movie can kind of slip into moments of, of, kind of deranged, just slipping reality with the whole doll subplot where Olivia Coleman is like, remembering her own memories, remembering what like was good about being a mom or like, we're struggling to figure that out by taking care of this or she stole the doll. I mean, it is just so strange. <laughs> um, and what's going through her head. I found to, to hear you say that the book is in first person. I think it makes total sense because this movie achieves first person perspective. Which I feel like it's really hard to do. I was pretty enamored by it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not as showy a performance as you know she gave in something like The Favorite, um, but I I just want to echo what Patches was saying about Olivia Coleman's performance here because I think low key, best is not a helpful term in this in this scenario, but I, I think this is maybe the most incisive illustration of why Olivia Coleman is so great in everything that she does. Yeah, because she is with with a few glances with a few. Uh, scenes where she has to act a lot behind her eyes um, and it's so much about her posture and the way that she's interpolating the energy of a moment um, is just carrying this whole movie and giving it this whole emotional dimension and uh, it's really phenomenal and I think that she kind of makes it look easy but there are you know a very small handful of people on the planet who could make this movie as psychologically active as she does. Uh, our next movie is something that I've actually joked would uh, could function as a prequel to The Lost da- Daughter. Katie has picked uh, another movie about a wayward female spirit living her life in the world. Katie, what's your number five pick? Yeah, I guess it's about the road not taken from The Lost Daughter, about the person who, uh, the woman in her 30s who doesn't have kids and feels good about it. It's the worst person in the world. Um, am I, is this my only, are, the only time we're going to talk about this? This is the only time we're going to talk about the worst wow. person. I, I need to catch up with this one. I know it is by this. highly this, revered. It is, uh, David, how do you pronounce the name of the director of this movie? I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> I was going to say worst person in the world. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you pronounce the <laughs> name of the director. Jo- I want to say, Joachim stuff. I want to say, Joachim, I think is probably right-ish. It's, okay. My inclination is always to like j-, j it up a little bit more, which I feel like Joachim. is wrong. Like joa, jo- no, but it's. I think it's <laughs> that, like going to like a Portuguese sort of thing. No, I think it, Joachim Trier is. is it's uh, it's Norwegian. I don't know anything about Norwegian, Tatane. Uh, but Sorry. <laughs> Tatane. it is uh, this really lovely and insightful and very easy to watch movie about this woman who has a boyfriend and then thinks she wants another boyfriend because she meets a guy at a wedding. And Not then, like a second boyfriend at yeah, the same Yeah, like time. she wants to like break up with him and then she goes on a drug trip and she changes careers a bunch of times and she kind of messes up and then comes back to it. And that's kind of the whole plot and it sounds really aimless and like a terrible Sundance movie, but every single scene just pops. Like it is really building this entire portrait of this woman and this period in your life that is you know about like figuring out do you have kids do you stay with this person do you do this career like it's it's a relatable time it's not necessarily something that i relate to now but it makes you feel kind of immediately thrust back into a period in your life when you've done that um the woman who is the lead is renata reinsva which i guess i'm saying right she is 
really incredible. I think she I think she is going to be doing like English language stuff. Like we will see her and other things. She's like beautiful and should be everywhere. And, and she looks like Dakota Johnson. And, she looks like uh, she looks a good bit like Dakota Johnson. And there's also um, like a Norwegian Adam Driver knockoff. The second guy, I think. Yeah. Sure. And there's also no? Anders uh-huh. Danielson Lie, uh, yeah. uh, yes. who will come up again. Yes. But uh, who had a hell of a year? Who Your is Nor- uh, Norway's, a, a uh, real doctor? Literal mm. doctor who's like treating COVID patients and also super hot. And in this movie, it's ridiculous that he's a doctor and also this hot. Um, and he brings this like generation gap element to it. Like you later in the movie, you kind of catch up with this character, and there's this like uh, like elegy for Gen X that I found very moving as well. Um, it's just so. We were talking about something else we were watching, maybe Olivia Coleman or something else. Like, it seems like it should be easy or petite maman. Like, you think it's easy to be like, oh, well, just watch someone like trying to grow up and figure it out. But it's really not. And you see a movie like this and you realize when it's done well, how miraculous it can feel. So. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because she becomes like five different things in the first five minutes of the movie. I mean, it yeah. happens with this torrent of action in the same sort of uh, literary hyperverbal logaric uh, style that Joachim Trier's uh, other film set in. Norway, like Oslo, August 31st, and Reprise have been. This is sort of closing out that unofficial trilogy um, of films with also Anders Danielson Lee. Uh, but if, Katie, you were talking about sun, how it sounds kind of like a Sundance movie. They're in, in a way that I don't want to be overly dismissive to 500 Days of Summer, but this does hmm. feel in a more sort of Eurocentric, sophisticated, wizened sort of way, to me, kind of like a, the, the next 10 years of that movie. Like, you know, huh, that, that was yeah. sort of someone kind of had like a 20s energy to it this is you know someone in i yokim tree i think is older than 40 but uh reflecting on the 30s sort of energy of like that the stagnancy that that period of time in your life can bring um and trying on all these different identities and i i mean i this i think is a very strong movie i struggled the one and only time i've really watched it from start to finish i struggled with the more uh melodramatic turn that it takes in the final third hmm. um and maybe that would sit better with me the final time around it's important to the main character's arc for sure but it didn't feel quite uh of a whole with the rest of the movie the one and only time i saw it at 8 30 in the morning at the can but um it's yeah i mean the beautiful film a lot of really stunning sequences and performances and, and the reason you only ever see that still of her running down the street uh when you see the movie you understand because it's from like this really incredible scene in the movie. katie when you uh when you get around to watching my year-end video where I uh, <laughs> emailed Neon in like August and I was like, I need you guys to send me that sequence because I need to build my entire video around it. And they very graciously complied. That was very nice um, of them. You will, uh, you will see. I will see. Speaking of things that Katie will learn when she watches your video, David, your top five <laughs> pick uh, will be the first time this movie shows up on the list, but not the last. It's Drive My Car. Uh, yeah, actually, I do want to just double back for a second and say, I actually don't really care if Katie does or does not watch my video, but I did want to <laughs> uh-huh. thank her for uh, donating to yeah. the fundraiser that I'm doing along with it, uh, with Jane Campion's help and uh, consultation, and we're supporting three uh, nonprofits in Texas that provide uh, abortion access to women who are in a state where uh, reproductive rights are um, you know, few and far between. They're clinging to what few they have left and uh, supporting three really excellent funds that Jane Campion uh, chose. And you'll understand why Jane Campion, of all people, was consulted for this project uh, by the time this episode ends. Um, so thank you, Katie. And if that sounds like something you'd be interested in doing, uh, 
you can find it. It's on the internet. I don't know. Maybe Dave can provide a link uh, for this episode. Put a um, link to thing in notes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, drive my car. Are we talking about this again later? Yes. Great. Uh, then I don't. I can let someone else uh, take a turn talking about it. But uh, yeah, one of two Ryusuke Hamaguchi movies this year. Um, How was the, the other, other one? Wheel of, I the other was Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, yeah. which was partially shot, like actually Drive My Car, partially shot during the pandemic. Uh, that was a triptych of short stories um, that had a lot to do with sort of fate and circumstance and was also sort of beguiling and excellent and very, uh, very much a Ryosuke Hamaguchi movie, um, maybe even more in the vein of his earlier films like Asako 1 and 2 and Happy Hour, but uh, excellent movie. Uh, Drive My Car was just a little bit more high-profile, premiering in competition at Cannes. It's adapted from a Haruki Murakami short story. It's three hours long, uh, which is by no means the longest film that Hamaguchi has made. Happy Hour is five hours long. Uh, but it is a very, very fast three hours long about a um, about a, a sure. theater director and star yeah. who finds that his wife is having an affair with another actor and then comes home one day after getting in a car accident because it turns out he has a blind spot, uh, to find that his wife uh, is dead. And the rest of the movie, this is the 40-minute prologue. Um, I, know. I almost want to scream spoilers now, but I'll, give it, I'll let you no. go. It, we, we it's love, early for the title screen. We it love, is. rock hard, even Katie, at the idea of a movie dropping its title sequence oh, we love 40 that. minutes in. You have Just to incredible. respect it. I mean, it um, actually makes a lot of sense here, where it feels it sure like we does. watched like the first movie in a in a, in a or something you know like it, absolutely yeah. it serves a very clear narrative function it bifurcates the story you're jumping two years ahead uh, and the rest of the movie finds that same character uh directing another production of uncle vanya um which he does in his style where everyone in the cast speaks their native tongue whether it's english or japanese or korean sign language and they all sort of speak it at each other and are just listening for their turn to speak and their subtitles and every different language they're playing behind them um, and the relationship that he develops with the woman who was hired to chauffeur him as he is driven around town listening to the tape that his wife recorded, which is how he practices his lines, uh, his late wife recorded. And uh, man, there's a lot going on in this movie, uh, and I'm just going to leave it at... For the, the, my point of entry into it was sort of this fascinating collision, uh, pun intended, between a male filmmaker who has made almost exclusively films about the interior lives of women and a novelist who I love, who has always struggled with imagining the interior lives of women and essentially just like had this one idea of it. And, and the women have sort of been uh, avatars for certain ideas that men are going to project onto them and has reused it you know, across many of his novels over the years. So it's a really interesting meeting of the minds uh, and it breaks in all sorts of fascinating ways. And do not be put off by the three hour running time. It breezes by. It is a total blast to watch, um, and it is the first film since The Social Network to win the New York Film Critics Circle, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and the National Society of Film Critic Award for Best Picture in the same year. It's pretty high fucking praise. Why? And hey, it also won yeah. the Golden Globe. It did. So. It did. Why do you think it has done that hat trick, though? Like, what is it that is, like, really elevating about the, uh, you know, the next four movies we're going to talk about? I mean... There are certainly a lot to choose from. I do think there is kind of a consensus period uh, element to it. It is kind of undeniable. It's craft, it, the writing, the performances. Uh, Hidetoshi Nishijima uh, is just remarkable in the lead role. Um, and I want to make sure, actually, I want to double check that I got his name. Uh, you did. Exactly right. You did. Okay, good, because it is a pet peeve of mine. Um, and 
it, it just has a sort of undeniable intelligence and craft and emotionality to it. And it's a really hard movie, I think, to dislike for anyone who has a vested interest in, uh, you know, the filmed arts. I think uh, it's not div- divisive in the way that uh, Titan might be. It's not, um, I think, flying under the radar like a petite maman. It doesn't skew younger like uh worst person in the world might. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I think it, it sort of does the job for all comers um, and is just undeniable. And also Harold's, I think a lot of people got the message a couple of movies ago, but for anyone who hasn't, it sort of really cements the arrival of Ryusuke Hamaguchi as a major filmmaker on the world stage. So for all of those reasons. Um, oh, we'll be check. back to it. We might even explain who's driving what car in, in the next time we talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that means it's time to move on to number fours, and I'm going to start it off again by bringing up for the final time and the highest point on this countdown, uh, Pig, again. Hmm. Uh, blank, motherfucker. Yeah, I was just really fucking surprised by it, and I put it off. It came out, I think, around like lamb, because there was some period of time where there was like, there's a lamb, there's a pig, ha ha ha, and I'm like, okay, it came whatever. out. It came out in the summer, lamb was October, but they were both in the ether around the same time. Yeah, yeah, so it was like available on Hulu at any time, and I could have uh, experienced pig, and I waited like a fucking idiot, because I thought <laughs> it was going to be Mandy Nicholas Cage, like, headbutting people's, like, noses apart uh, in pursuit of a pig, but as David has outlined, it is not. It is uh, much more about uh, regret and loss and uh, food uh, than I was ever expecting. And then also uh, the relationship, I think, between um, a father and a son who, uh, who are trying to share an industry despite really not having to share an industry and how that sort of uh, plays into the overall melange of the film. I really like it. Uh, it made me hungry several times. Mm, and yeah. Um, that good kind of sad right at the end. Um, I think especially when we had, you know, some movies that were mean about, uh, loss, uh, don't look up, uh, and the state of the world. Uh, this one ends in a way where I'm not getting yelled at. I'm getting, uh, cradled into a difficult truth. Hmm. Uh, but it's an unavoidable one. So I'm very happy it was able to do that. And in a world where this movie isn't perfect right as it is, I would love to see uh, what uh, the version of, like, his chef coming back on the scene. Like, what, whatever brings this chef back onto too? the scene. Yeah. I want Pig 2. Bring on Pig 2. But I want it to go the level that John Wick to John Wick 2 did, where it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, well, now there's an assassin place where all the Pig chefs parabellums. have coins. Yeah. Pig they all eat that special bird that you eat whole that's like illegal to have now, but they all do it together on Sunday nights. Like, I, I would watch some of that movie. Yeah. Uh, but I also don't need it because Pig uh, is great as it is. But you're also describing a movie that's very different from the regular Pig, um, which is what I like so much about it, that it's not the John Wick Pig that you're thinking yes. of. Because are, I was... we, are we excited for the Nicolas Cage movie, The Unbearable <laughs> Weight of Massive Talent, in which he is playing Nicolas Cage? I, yes. I, yes. There's a trailer floating around, and it is quite enjoyable and humorous totally different I'm, mode i'm up for that and i'm also up for renfield uh his uh what uh yes he's gonna play project. a vamp he's gonna play a vampire soon finally uh, he's it's God. full circle it's full first bitten circle 
Did we all see that uh, clip of him at the Actors Roundtable with Hollywood Reporter where he's telling Talking a story about, about riding the horse, a horse that tried oh, to yes. kill him? And Andrew Garfield is just like laughing harder than you've ever seen someone laugh in your life. We are all really Andrew Garfield. That is funny. It's Nick so Cage. And Jonathan Majors is like, I rode that horse. And yeah, Nick, I, that, Nick that Cage horse is likes like, me fine. I rapped three months ago. How did you like? <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's a, that's a great clip. Nick Cage maybe showing up at the Academy Awards this year. You think? We'll see. Maybe no. possible. He got a Critics' uh, Choice Award. Uh, he got a Critics' Choice nomination. Not uh, impossible. I, I think if Nicolas Cage gets nominated for an Oscar, critics everywhere will be drunk with power. Um, <laughs> uh, Willem Dafoe got nominated for At Eternity's Gate. You never know what's going to happen. That's true. Wow. True. Patches, you got um, a, a rarity here. You got a movie that doesn't appear anywhere else on this list again. Really? You're back, You're back in the patches oh. mode. Oh, this must be in the depths of the David's list, I would hope. Cut. The Snyder Cut. I actually thought about putting the Snyder Cut <laughs> the in the number 10 slot. Uh, it was an improvement. Most improved movie of the year. <laughs> Most improved. <laughs> Uh, you're gonna watch the second cut of a movie watch the second snyder cut <laughs> my uh my number four is a movie from an angry man from an outspoken man from a facebook man his name's paul yeah Schrader, paul schrader yeah. and it's the card counter <laughs> uh, fucking right it was what number was this on your on your i mean list? it doesn't matter but it was definitely on the list okay I, i'm surprised because i know you were doing the round schrader you talked to schrader a lot during this I, you I, uh, rescheduled this podcast to talk yeah. to Schrader at a QA. <laughs> I, I spent a, a unexpected amount of time with Paul Schrader this year. Um, and uh, he is quite the character, as I think most people know by now. But uh, I, I really responded to this movie, and I'm interested to hear what Matt has to say about it. Yeah. Um, so I, I missed this when it came out. I mean, it barely came out i don't i think it made like one million dollars or something in theaters um and hopefully people will it turned i i will say it it, it turned a profit everyone is happy okay uh, good it made i'm glad yeah, schrader continues to schrader and he and he can, can shred them <laughs> they, they can't take his facebook account yeah away make just more yet. movies paul schrader because i i want to be angry with you i mean few people kind of burrow like this man burrows into uh, the the human experience he carves out human psyche with like a melon baller and plops it on a plate in this movie. I don't know if we ever did an episode on Card Counter or talked about it, but um, Oscar Isaac plays William Tell, <laughs> who uh, gets out of prison <laughs> with, uh, with a, a knack for counting cards and hits the tables to basically live and make just enough money. He does not want to be a star. He wants to go to casinos, make some money, leave before getting caught, and go on to a different casino. Um, and then eventually in the movie, Ty Sheridan shows up. I'm always, I'm always rooting for Ty Sheridan. Um, he, he you put the tender bar in your listening. Oh tender God. I, I will never watch tender bar. I'm sorry, Ty. <laughs> um, he showed up in the movie hoping to loop Oscar Isaac into a plan to kill Oscar Isaac's old commanding officer, because it turns out William Tell was one of the soldiers, uh, torturing so-called terrorists at Abu Ghraib. And... What, sure what it was just a smack across your face moment when you realize like what is bubbling under the surface here. I, I find myself really entranced slash horrified by any story at this point that's revolving around Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, anything involving the Iraq war, simply because it was so hard to understand at the time when I was young. Um and and, and the atrocities are so clear now and very few people will face justice i remember like the report from a few years ago with adam driver that was guantanamo but um 
similar scenes similar scenes of just like horrific torture now this depiction could not be more different i mean schrader definitely goes there with the torture the scenes of abu Ghraib are shot with this like double vision saturated camera that is just it's really tough to watch and right before watching card counter at home i installed a new subwoofer and uh sound bar into my home and it was destroying my house like if i thought any <laughs> blockbuster movie was putting that equipment to good use actually just horrific acts of torture in the card counter were putting it to good like loud metal music anyway um this is a movie about like a cancer that oscar isaac's character possesses that he's able to fight off but it's it's like a terminal illness it, his crimes working in Abu Ghraib haunt him and he plays cards to to keep going and to ignore it and when he's activated by Ty Sheridan he spirals and I find that character portrait to be so scary um, and and then you have uh, Tiffany Haddish coming into this movie which I, I read a lot at the time it was just like strange casting for her comedic actress to, to be in this movie but she has such a sweet presence as his fellow card player slash scout, kind of a romantic interest. She's a glimmer of hope. And she, even when it's over, she's still kind of a glimmer of hope for his character. And they form such a lovely bond. And the three of them have this amazing kind of found family dynamic. But um, when when the revelations come out and when the request is for bloodshed, I, I was just so... Every scene was sucking the air out of me. Um, between the actual moments of violence and then car playing cards in a way that feels like violence. You know, David, I, I would love to hear a little bit from you about Sh Schrader and maybe talk to him about shooting the card games, but the card games vi feel vicious in their own right. The they feel like violence and war, and I could imagine playing poker could appeal to a soldier like William Tell. Um, there's a real balance to his memories of Abu Ghraib and the scenes playing cards in this movie it's a it's a real masterstroke from from schrader what he's kind of juggling here and of course william tells main opponent opponent all those card games is the biggest america asshole uh you could ever imagine so the satire can be kind of blunt too but i don't know did anyone else see card counter is this this didn't make anyone else's list come on i mean this is an angry it was, good it was movie on my uh my wider list and uh i i love that i can't speak to exactly what you were just talking about in terms of the actual card scenes but um i i just will say that uh, similar to first reformed and any of the other movies that uh paul schrader has made about a man in a room wearing a mask in which the mask is his job uh you know first reformed taxi driver um and and uh, there are Many more across his long career. Um, this is at heart a movie about absolution and, and guilt and the guilt that the impossible guilt that men carry and people carry in all walks of life. And, uh, you know, torturing on behalf of the U.S. government during the Iraq war is sort of this uh, bearing the personification of uh, an American stain um, that you can't really wash out of his soul uh, is a guilt that Oscar Isaac's character finds a very hard time of unburdening himself from. And it becomes a real examination about, in, in a sort of uh, trans transcendental, spiritualistic way, as to whether or not you know, it's possible for someone to absolve themselves of their own guilt, whether or not they have to use someone else as a catalyst to absolve them of their sins, um, and what sort of uh, um, you know, absolution is possible. And uh, there, there are beats in here that Paul Schrader very cogniz cognizantly reuses, not, from, not only from his own body of work, but from... Uh, other filmmakers, Robert Brisson in particular, 
Uh, and uh, it, it is all another, it's another one of his movies. Um, and that's how he would describe it. It's, you know, the same formula. Um, he's now making another one with, um, what's his face? As my brain dries up in my old age, I keep forgetting. Uh, Australian actor, Pug Nose from The Great Gatsby. Joel Edgerton. Thank you. Um, about a horticulturist who is, has a dark, de- a dark secret. Um, and uh, so you're going to be getting another card counter like <laughs> sure. movie coming later I'll on. Watch but it. This one, this one affects a really striking mood that sets it apart from the other films. I mean, they're always enough to make it their own. He's not like Hong Sang Soo, where he's really just iterating like a, a round in a song. I mean, it's a little there's, there's enough change going on, and um, the the vibe, the sort of like pallid purgatorial middle american vibe of these sad casinos and the way that robert levin bean's uh music this droning song with this sort of you know cumulative snowballing emotionality to it brings that to life i think is as unique and pretty daring power to it and uh i really love this movie for all of its arch drama it's not for all tastes but if you can vibe with Paul Schrader would be thrown down here. I think um, it's an angry, an angry, angry movie that could not have been better timed to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. <laughs> Love I did not like movies. this movie. It wasn't for me. It might not be for you. <laughs> Why did you like it? I found it exhausting and Hell yeah. mean yes. and like mean. boring also. And oh. I didn't buy the relationship in the middle of it. I didn't think Tiffany Haddish was that good in it. Oh. Um, and it felt really thudding in, in its metaphor and what it was trying to explore. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) Well, back to the positive. Katie, you get to talk about the top placing spot for licorice pizza. Oh man. I do feel like, I know we kept saying we're going to talk about it more in the top spot, but we talked about this last week and I don't know what more to say about it other than like, it's the movie I'm most eager to rewatch of anything on my list. Maybe. Is there a scene Um, that you love? the most or uh, the- all the Bradley Cooper stuff like everything uh, at John Peters's house including the truck uh, Streisand uh, it's Streisand he's Streisand. so Streisand. good in it like that and then the Benny Safdie stuff at the end of it I think um, and I, as much as I love Cooper Hoffman and all the really sweet parts of it I just think the way these actors come in and out like the Sean Penn Tom Waits stuff too which like you just it sounds terrible in a vacuum but like they're this link to old Hollywood like the way that this movie shows these kids like being surrounded by all these icons of another generation, like um, Christine Ebersole is this Lucille Ball type who shows up um, and Hype. that they are. Uh, well, she's she's not credited as Lucille Ball. Like, oh. The character name is something. Else. And, and the, she's in a made movie, up movie. Yeah, that's big. yeah. The movie is yours, mine and ours, but they gave it a different title. Um, I, I don't know if uh, Lucille Ball's estate would have sued. Who knows? Um, Aaron Sorkin yeah. would have sued. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting in the way of his own Lucille movie. Um, like we talked about this last week, the way it's these kids like adjacent to grown up world, but not part of it. Um, I think the Hollywoodness of it plays into that really well. Um, and I'm thinking about what David said about you know you'd like a, you put a Paul Thomas Anderson movie on your list, and then years later you realize how much you love it. Like that's happened to me with um, There Will Be Blood and The Master. I think are the big two, and uh, I imagine this will be the same thing that I will think about this and return to it uh, a lot. So I love love Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza topping out on number four. Uh, David, you have brought a movie that it will also not be appearing anywhere else on this list. It is Memoria. Ma- Memoria. <laughs> dun, dun, 
Dun, dun. Oh, so uh, you're some elite who saw it in a theater and no one else will be able to because you believe in your privilege? Yeah, man. Uh, I I had uh, the foresight to be born in the tri-state area hmm. so that 37 years later I could be in a city where I could go and see Memoria, um, which just opened in New York at Christmas and is... Uh, as some of you out there may know, is has a unique rollout where it is playing at one screen at a time, um, going completely against the grain of the streaming release pattern and going for ultra exclusivity, where it's going to be a roadshow production. It's playing at one screen at a time, one screen only. I wish that it were even more exclusive and this was sort of a worldwide deal where it was traveling the globe and it was just one real or uh, canister film that was getting tattered and, and beaten uh. up over the years. But uh, the movie is getting a more um, contemporary release strategy elsewhere in the world. Um, it, you know, I think it's putting up a movie or someone, some streaming outfit in in Europe uh, and so forth. But it's at the Chapong, where it's Thackle's first feature-length film since Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. Uh, it stars, it does not take place in Thailand like his previous films. It takes place in Colombia and stars Tilda Swinton um, amongst a native cast. Um, and she plays a woman who lives in Colombia who is plagued by uh, a sound that she can't place, a loud, thudding sound uh, that haunts her occasionally in the night, comes out of nowhere like a jump scare. This is sort of in the same vein as uh, Abbas Kiristami's, um, God, I always want to call it Last Life in the Universe. Uh, one of my favorite movies, I am continuing to struggle with the names of things as my brain just deteriorates. What was the name of his last movie, anyone? Uh, anyone, no one out there, no one even listening, screaming at their car radios. Bueller. Uh, uh, you're all useless. I'm going to find it. Like Someone in Love, of course. Uh, one of my favorite films of the decade, which of course has no bearing on me remembering its title. Um, uh, which another sort of art house icon opening movies, or if, in that case, closing a movie with a jump scare. But, uh, there were other jump scares in art house movies this year. I'm struggling to remember what some of them were, but it feel, felt like a recurring motif. Um, but this one opens with a doozy. It recurs throughout the movie as she tries to, uh, in her, in, in the filmmakers, sort of typically um, serene, uh, you know, sort of a slow cinema uh, guy who's typically, you know, filed under that umbrella. Um, I don't think this movie is particularly challenging. Uh, it, it has its own rhythms. It absolutely, I mean, one of the themes, I think, when you look back on the paradigms of movie distribution these days that you'll see this sort of false dichotomy is that the bigger movies, these spectacles, the blockbusters need to be seen in on the big screen, whereas the smaller movies are relegated to distribution. I would argue that to a certain extent, it's kind of the opposite. Um, maybe not the opposite, like the, the movies, the James Cameron's of the world. Uh, I suppose your Spider-Man benefit from the big screen, of course, but it's actually the smaller movies that need to more encapsulate you in sort of the snow globe of your own attention and the spell of their casting. And Memoria is... Uh, an epitome of that. I mean, this is not a movie that would fundamentally be the same thing, let alone the same experience, if you were to see it on even the biggest television with your phone in sight and uh, ambient sounds coming in. It kind of needs a perfect vacuum. Um, and it builds a really beguiling power as Tilda Swinton's character does. You know, it doesn't go insane in the way that you would expect uh, or, or think of when you think of a movie character cracking up, but the butter kind of very slowly slides off the knife um, and leads her deep into the heart of the country and ends with, uh, you know, I make these videos and I'm usually pretty 
pretty easy going with with spoilers. Uh, I try not to spoil anything too major in like the introduction, but you know, I've been known to uh, reveal things past the midpoint of a film and the little bits that I devote to each movie. And I'll just say the last 10 minutes of Memoria is something that was too sensitive for me to touch with a 10 foot pole. I would not uh, ever dream of, of ruining something. I would never imagine that an Apichatbong Weir's Thackle movie could possibly be spoiled. And I knew what happened at the end going into it, unfortunately, and it did not by any stretch of the imagination spoil my experience. But at the same time would have been a real thrill to see uh, completely cold. Um, but if you get the chance, and hopefully you will, and uh, hopefully this will be in your town at a time when it's safer to go to the movies, or we'll come back around. But uh, if, if it's safe and possible to do so, don't miss Memoria on the big screen. Give yourself over to it. You won't regret it. Or maybe you will, but you won't, you won't forget it. <laughs> they'll, they'll blame you. You'll you might- remember that night out at the very least. <laughs> It'll at least be memorable. Interesting promise, but I'll take it. All right, good news for our very tired hosts. We're in the top three, and additional good news for both number three, number two, and number one. Uh, one of you has picked the same movie as me for each one of those spots, so you're not going <laughs> into it alone uh, for the final ones. <clears throat> the winner for number three is me and Katie. Woo! We'll pick The Green Knight. Hell yeah. This is the movie. Wow. bloody and mean. Not really that angry. The, gre- uh, the Green Knight? Fuck the Come card the counter. The, the Green... The Green Knight. Not the, the Green... Like, you're specifying which knight it is. Green Knight. I don't know. Green, no, I'm not what? talking knight like nighttime. I'm talking like the knight. The Green Knight. Yeah, no, I'm just saying like... It it like there's mocked. so many knights and this one happens to be about the Green so, One. This, was this the green one knight. has to be about the Green One. This is the, the Green, green knight. knight. Yeah. Uh... Oh, well, you were talking about seeing, uh, giving yourself over to the vacuum of a movie theater. The Green Knight is the first movie I went back and saw in a theater. I saw it over the summer in a silent but respectful and uh, really delighted and weirded out audience, which is exactly the way I think you should see The Green Knight. I don't know that I understand a lot of The Green Knight. And again, kind of like Guard Rocket, not usually necessarily my thing. I, I like to be kind of taken on a journey that I can you understand. You like when but- Dev Patel comes on screen. I- <laughs> Wow, has he ever done that before? No, Slumdog Millionaire, uh, uh, coming on. The Last Airbender, Game <laughs> Band. He was on Skins, which is not a thing. There is a I scene watched. in Lion I feel where he has like a Munich-like sweat flop, like flop oh. sweat. Mm. I can't. I don't think it's sexually triggered, yeah. but I just remember him like absolutely dripping sweat. Yeah, that sounds hair. right. I think. Uh, I guess there's sweat in the Green Knight, although I think of it as a cold movie. He's got that beautiful cloak oh, yeah. that's keeping love. him warm. Um, I just love how like David Lowry movies have uh, generally always worked for me, kind of in the same way as a ghost story, where like you don't necessarily understand literally what is happening, and it doesn't matter because it is this journey and this opportunity to kind of explore symbols and images and performances that also confuse you and captivate you at the same time. Uh, Joel Edgerton, our, our friend from previously, shows up as the lord of a manor who uh, has weird intentions and I don't really know what he wanted, but I don't really care. Um, I haven't seen this movie again since my really wonderful hermetically sealed theater experience in the summer, but I've been thinking about it ever since and I've just been uh, excited to get to talk about it again um, Katie, on this list. I think one of the, you really hit the nail on the head on one of the, the most sort of beguiling and beautiful things about this movie, which is, and something that David Lowry owns uh, and harnesses in a way that a lot of other filmmakers might be afraid of, which is I think that even he 
and I think he's been quite open about this, doesn't entirely understand what he makes of hmm. the the poem uh, on which this film is based. Yeah. Um, and, but he knows that it resonates with him and that it excites his imagination and has for decades now. But that, like, even he is sort of in the process of searching for that meaning, exploring it um, and challenging his own interpretation, even as he molds it to his own specific, specific interests and uh, aesthetic. But I well, think that's, that's part of what part of its power. That's what's so interesting about stories that have lasted for as long as that. And I was thinking about uh, just tragedy at Macbeth, which is not on my list, but is a you know another old story that you can kind of take and reframe. And you know, just asking yourself, why does this still say something to me centuries after it was written? I think is uh, is itself a reason to make the movie. Yeah, they, and talking foxes. Yeah, and so, uh, ghost girls. Oh yeah, yeah, and the uh, giants. I love, I love oh, all the weirdness of Such cool giants. Movie. The Very, giants uh, felt like like live action Fantastic Planet. Um, um what about a Barry? Uh, what's his name? Keegan. Eric Yojin. Oh, yeah. Is that how you say it? Yoshin? No, I don't know. I've done I've done way too much pronunciation, <laughs> pronunciation flexing this episode. episode yeah. uh, so I, without without necessarily a leg to stand on. So I, down I don't want to pipe in. Uh, Eternal and Green Knight is a strange double feature to, for one actor to have in a year, but he rules in both. Yeah, that's true. He does really pull his weight. Love me some Green Knight. It was also my first uh, movie back in theaters. Um, so I wonder if it's always going to have that that time period. But again, also my audience, sparse, quiet, very mm-hmm. respectful the entire way through. Yeah. Even like during the like montage of like, isn't it great to be back at the movies beforehand? Everyone was like, hmm, yes, back. <laughs> in the spirit like- of... The- uh, Sorry, Katie, go on. No, I lied. In the Heights was actually my first movie back. Um, but oh. uh, The Green Knight was right there. Too. In the spirit of this movie and Dev Patel's character, if I can get horned for a second, I just want to say that Alicia Vikander's like mm. page boy, uh, not even a page boy, it's like a pixie cut that she has in one of the two characters that she plays in this movie uh, really works for me. Yeah, she had a Julia <laughs> Robertson this, this hook thing going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> the Tinkerbell. Uh, Patches... You get to bring up the top spot of this movie uh, that makes me cry. Yeah, I picked Coda for number three. Um, I just cannot get over a genuine family movie that is heartfelt and earnest and 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 sticks the landing. Um, there's laughter and screaming and warmth and fear and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters trying to figure out the next stages of their lives. It could be so hacky and like abc family fodder but um there's so many reasons i think why what what sean Hader does in this to to avoid contrivance well big one is setting it in gloucester massachusetts and having that kind of gloucester specific- gloucester, gloucester. gloucester. Even I know you're that. just like forcing my hand here man uh, i'm trying i'm trying to stay quiet titane um titane um yeah setting it on the fishing boat in in this town that feels so alive i think really, really helps us feel dropped in to this world. It can be sappy, um, but because it, it believes love is strong and passion is fuel for things, I, I just got so caught up in it. I really got caught up in, you know, Marley Matlin, Troy Kotzer, Daniel Durant, and all the uh, ASL performers in this, and individuals who are never defined by their deafness. And, uh, they're components of a family. They each have their own paths. They feel really dimensional too uh i and this movie is so strong it's my number three despite 
uh, Eugenio Derbez's cringe performance as the music teacher. Just uh, not. Oh, he's <laughs> fine. He's no. fine. He's, he's a little overboard. He's not cringe. <laughs> he's he's, I, I, he's God, in a slightly I, different I, movie. But he, it cringe. overcomes it all. It overcomes cringe the- as a word is the cringiest fucking thing in the world to me. But I, it, yeah, whatever. If there's for lieu of a, lack of a better term, I'm well, with that. Welcome to I mean, totally. Yeah. It's like I know, but it's like that. The whole the movie is like straining to elevate itself above sort of the worst Sundance cliches, and he is just the anchor tied around its mass. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. But I just don't think it. I don't think it weighs it down. Um, really great, wonderful. No, no movie to watch with anyone i'm with you dave i cried and i remember it crying all the time mostly with the dad stuff (laughs) i don't know why (laughs) all right that's gonna move us on to david's pick for number three which is the souvenir part two yeah i guess i'm not shocked that this didn't show up on anyone else's list uh don't need to Name go too long us. here. Souvenir Part 2 is a nothing. I just like it. It's a movie that made $7 and was a sequel to a movie that made $8. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the, the, the all, all one person who bought a ticket at the price of $8 to the original uh, went out and made their own movie. Uh, made their own souvenir. Uh, no, I, this is a Joanna Hogg film. It's an autobiographical film starring Til- a lot of Swinton action on this list. It stars... Tilda Swinton again, but also more centrally, her daughter, Honor Swinton, Honor the actress, Honor the role. Uh, and uh, she was a play, of course, on the iconic campaign for some movie that Katie will have to remind me where they did like Honor the Man, Honor the. Oh, uh, that was the imitation game. Of course. <laughs> and of course. Uh, we'll talk about we'll talk about Benedict Cumberbatch again in a minute, too. Um, and uh, it's a sequel to a movie that that Joanne Hogg made a couple of years ago called The Souvenir, which was about being a film student in 1980s uh, London and uh, the relationship that she had with this slightly older man who she met um, at a very vulnerable time in her life at a point of self-discovery and vulnerability and sort of becoming her own person and her own artistic artistic becoming. And he was a heroin addict. And spoiler alert for the souvenir, he dies of an overdose at the end of the film. And this sequel, in a year full of very self-reflexive films, both large and small, from The Matrix Resurrections, which was in my top 25, to uh, The Souvenir Part 2, and the next film that we'll get to on my list, um, sort of sort of takes a Hall or House of Mirrors approach to uh, that story, and sort of is about the making of the first souvenir in a way. I mean, it's about the next phase of her time in film school, uh, in which we see her make a film called The Souvenir, which is a short film that Johanna Hogg did, in fact, make when she was... Um, younger and uh there are many layers at, at work here and um all of them coalesce into this really extraordinary portrait of uh that can, continues on the same way it has a relationship similar to the way that like twin peaks the return did to the original twin peaks now it dimensionalizes and, and adds a lot of fresh ideas to that original story i applied the same analogy to the matrix resurrections for that point but um it's just this extraordinary movie about filmmaking about what it can accomplish for someone about the, the personal weight of it about the continuing of this artistic self becoming um, and how the filmmaker that we see today became that person from the character that she and honor and burn have invented in the first movie in the really interesting way that Joanna Hogg works, which is without a screenplay and with everything sort of with a schematic, uh, but everything sort of invented 
in the moment. And the movies don't feel that way at all, even though they feel completely alive and original and, and unscripted in a certain dimension. There's also such an incredible craft and tactility to them. They don't feel like these sort of like free roving Judd Apatow movies. I mean, it's all very composed. Um, and then you have like a Richard Iowata coming in playing the smarmy, completely uh, self-absorbed and egotistical film school chum of hers and giving, you know, for my money, the year's one of the year's best supporting performances. I mean, truly extraordinary in the five minutes of screen time that he has. Uh, unforgettable stuff. Hilarious. Um, and it builds to a really transcendent ending that sort of collapses all these different film levels together. Uh, and I love this movie so, so much and um, cannot, it feels like such a gift, uh, a party favor as much as a souvenir that we got a sequel to one of my favorite movies of two years ago that um, is every bit as strong, if not stronger and richer and more resonant than the, the first one. Uh, I, I love it very, very much. Will there be a not, part three? There will mm. absolutely not be a part three. This is uh, designed <laughs> to be a diptych. It is, the book is closed. Joanne, the rest of Joanna Hogg's career, you know, post the part of her life that she retells in the souvenir part two was the part three in a way. Um, this Whoa. movie had a very brief <laughs> theatrical, I know, uh, very, very brief theatrical run um in october i believe uh and is actually not currently on vod but in february or march will be out there and available for you to see if you missed it the first time around so plenty of time to bone up on the original souvenir if you missed that too you will be rewarded all right we're down to the top twos this time uh patches you and i get to share a category oh great here because now it's time to talk about Drive My Car. Here it is, peaking at number two uh, for both me and Matt Patches. Uh, the part that I alluded to is that when he gets hired, uh, after the 40-minute intro, when he gets hired to do another production of Uncle Vanya uh, in a different city, uh, the um, company, the theater company that hires him to come in has had bad luck uh, with actors in the past driving themselves to and from uh, the theater. So he has to give over his very precious uh, red car. Very beautiful uh, car. Very beautiful car. To a 23-year-old uh, driver uh, named Watari, I'm told by uh, Wikipedia, although I don't necessarily remember the name, just as more as the presence, uh, who drives him back and forth to his hotel while he's learning the lines on tape from his dead wife and kind of forces him through this driver, I think, uh, more out of his shell, or at least while driving uh, is uh, forced out of, out of his shell. Because before this, we sort of get the idea that after the death of his wife, uh, he sort of retreated. He's not acting Vanya anymore, even though that's where he sort of like grew to prominence with this multilingual thing. He's not uh, putting up new work necessarily. Uh, we don't have any indications that he's written anything, which his wife used to be a screenwriter for, I guess, Japanese uh, television. Um, and well, he's so not really a writer, the... right? He's he's an actor by trade. No, his yeah, his job is to remember what she says while they're having sex and parrot it back to her so that yes. she could then take those stories and turn them into writing. Which looks like a great technique. I'm looking forward to experimenting with writing slash sex <laughs> in the future. Yeah, find that find Very that, creative. Uh, find that muse that comes up with 
great stories. It's just like I hope it's in the middle life. of having sex, she's like Andrew Garfield comes through a portal, and then you know you've you've hit the you've hit the jackpot. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, um, but I I really like um how both the main characters uh have to put up with their own feelings of uh regret and guilt that uh, to various points may or may not have been about them. Uh, they both um I think all the characters. Um, or all the main characters, which includes a young man he casts as the Uncle Vanya role in the new production. Uh, they're all, um, they've all been affected by a certain type of uh trauma or grief. Um, maybe that's not it. They all have an emptiness that they need to fill, and they all are sort of, uh, with I think one notable exception blaming themselves for that emptiness and i think the movie does a really good and paced job at uh like talking about uh titane at the beginning <laughs> um bouncing around certain issues without me necessarily feeling like the movie's trying to make me feel something about identity or how much uh self-delusion is good or bad for you uh, in any sort of time. Meanwhile, as this like very beautiful story is unfolding, uh, I think it's just extremely confidently shot. Uh, there's uh, several times once uh, we're out of the prologue that we're looking down on a moving ocean while we're either beside it or people are hanging out on piers. But they're the type of shots and framing uh, where... I started to lose track of what was like the shore and what was the actual water. And it all just sort of became like a swirling texture, which has to be something about the landscapes uh, of that particular region that I was just ignorant to. But this movie has a lot in it in all of its three hour running time. And I think it makes the most of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm right with you. I worried about a Murakami adaptation i'm not that familiar with amaguchi's previous films to be quite frank um but i think this adaptation feels like murakami's writing we're, we're floating through space time feeling vibes in the ether often and experiencing something crushing that never seems to kind of succumb to melodramatic weight i'm a big fan of um like li Changdong's poetry uh mountains may depart and and this kind of rang in that one or kind of fit on that same wavelength for me um where the time by taking its time i can really kind of luxuriate in the psychology i also think the the best move here is that um kafuku's his his approach to performing uncle vanya is this kind of like meisner technique where he's so devout to the written word he he wants people to perform it over and over again with no emotion. And I think Kamaguchi kind of takes a similar approach in the, in the direction and the staging of scenes where we're we're like playing back through memories and and through interactions and hitting those same notes until we find what's profound about those interactions. The repetition is important and the kind of like unemotional direction becomes important i i think there are thunderous revelations in the movie and they're all understated i'm just i'm blown back by how they can quietly come out maybe while like um 
there's this laid back melancholic jazz score playing in the movie a bit um and it can feel the driving it, this movie's about driving in cars i mean in a big way i feel like <laughs> driving in cars is enjoyable what we learn when we're behind the wheel what we feel when we're driving a car what we feel when we're not i mean i've been thinking a lot lately how driving with other people is fucking terrifying like getting in the back seat of a car while someone else is driving i cannot let myself go i just like i need to be in control to not be in control i mean uh, there's a good portion of this movie spent arguing about why he should not be driven by another person and how important that is to him and it seems very strange until really understand like the gravity of a situation and, and his connection to his car like it really makes sense and it's a tiny little thing but it's so momentous to, to him um i i the other one thing i wanted to point out is that the movie also includes uh, a deaf character uh, i don't know if she is a deaf actress but she is performing korean sign language in the movie she's one of the actors he he recruits for the stage the stage production of uncle vanya also fascinating i would love to watch it in real life where every actor in the show is performing in a different language and they just know the words so completely that they can interact with each other and you see this different subtitles on screen that just seems really cool um but her performance i i i i'm so tired of watching like the same shit with the same people and by having deaf actors in movies performing sign language here's an expressive powerful way of communication kind of instilled with the like the pain of 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 being marginalized inherently marginalized yet oozing with confidence someone knows what they're signing knows what they're performing um as it's like it's someone it is someone's first language you just don't see it very often and in coda and drive my car it's just really profound um and i find all of the casting choices all of the interactions of this movie we were talking earlier why is it amassing critic awards because it is the real deal complete package like every ounce of drama makes emotional sense and it's such a pleasure to watch i was telling someone to not watch this movie the other day because they're just this is not an entertaining movie david earlier in the podcast was like yeah this is great this is a a, uh, a, a I, total I blast I, and i'm like i'm not sure I it's a total blast but it flies by is what it does said, fly. it's is, not it does it it's is not thoroughly fucking, entertaining it's not fucking fury road but like no. it's it's very entertaining for the moment it starts uh you i i really don't think that most people will be bored no by watching it i agree um and will be shocked to, to drive my realize car. It drive this car long. drive my car well, how can people see it I actually don't know the answer to that question. I don't think yeah. it's uh, out in any capacity it's, yet. It's, it it's it's in is theaters. out. It's in theaters. Uh, it is in theaters. Um, I, you know, certainly in major cities. I don't think it's really made itself way beyond that. Obviously, people have concerns about going to the movies wherever they happen to live right now. Um, it will inevitably, because it was co-released by Janice and a mysterious new company called Sideshow that may have something to do with Netflix. We don't really know. Uh, but it's going to appear Wait, on. Really? Yeah, it's. I mean, no one. They, they've been not Netflix at all forthcoming. Um, I mean, this is. I uh, listen. I have my like Robert Langdon Da Vinci Code shit <laughs> theories about this. I, I, I have it. Like, it's like I know. I know personally the people who are distributing the movie, and yet I haven't really, you know, put a press them up against the wall mm. and demanded answers. But um, they, we did flirt with the idea of running a story about the Citro company that came into existence, released this movie and uh, along with Janice and it didn't end up happening and so I don't really know the answers but there was part of the Mitchell's versus the Machines another very good movie uh Mitchell's versus the Machines marketing 
this Netflix movie that was produced by Lord and Miller about a young cinephile uh, as part of their like film swag and their FYC stuff. Uh, <laughs> the character wrote a letter talking about all these various auteur driven movies that she was excited to see. And um, all of them happened to be Netflix movies. And one of the movies on that letter was Drive My Car. And I was like, either Netflix is suddenly in the business of promoting its com- competitors' films, <laughs> or uh, there's something going on with Drive My Car that uh, we have yet to learn. And I was, and that was before Drive My Car had been acquired. And so I was like, oh, did did this fictional 16 year old character <laughs> in this movie just reveal that Netflix is distributing Drive My Car? And it turned out that wasn't quite the case. Um, it movie is going to be on the Criterion Collection, uh, the Janus part of the distribution basically guarantees that whether it's the criterion channel or netflix or whatever else will boil down to what the sideshow element of it ends up meaning i don't have the answer yet but one way or another you'll probably get a good chance to see this movie um at least at home in 2022 i wouldn't fret nice all right i'm gonna hold katie's for reasons that will become obvious but david your number two is bergman island uh yeah, Bergman Island, Mia Hansen Love. Uh, I I am uh, a longtime devotee of this filmmaker. Previous films include such wonders as Eden, Goodbye First Love, Things to Come. Um, she really speaks my language. I love everything that she makes. I love how she makes it. And uh, this is all of her films are extremely personal to one degree or another. Um, and so I sort of blanch at the idea that this is her most personal film. But uh, it's certainly a very autobiographical one. Uh, it is about a, I mean, me, Hanson Love was partnered for a long time and had a child with Olivier Assayas, another world-class filmmaker. Uh, and this is a movie in which, um, uh, fuck, what's her name? Vicky Creeps uh, plays, Creep. yeah, it was wonderful in the movie, plays a filmmaker around the same age and reputation as me, Hanson Love, um, who goes on a sort of writing retreat with her husband, who is an older, more venerable filmmaker, played by Tim Roth, to Faro Island, where Ingmar Bergman lived, died, and made you know, the majority of his films, certainly his most iconic films, um, and was not a particularly attentive father, uh, because you know, patriarchal ways of living didn't demand that he be. Uh, it's hard to make you know, that many masterpieces in that many years and still have time to uh, be home for dinner, as one of the characters observes in the film. And while she's there, she begins imagining a movie that she's writing or we see sort of fleshed out this movie that she's writing while she's there um, that is based on her own experiences when she was younger and stars Mia Wasikowska as an avatar for herself and Anders Danielson Lie of uh, The Worst Person in the World fame um, and sort of a romantic ships passing in the night misconnection sort of story and there's layer upon layer upon layer and then extra layers in the last 30 minutes which uh, is similar to The Souvenir 2 uh, complicate things in, in really poignant and moving ways and sort of blur the line between fiction, reality, and all that. And it's just such a beautifully rendered movie. It's so delicate. It, by no means do you need to be either A, you know, deeply invested in Ingmar Bergman or knowledgeable about his film, or B, do you have to really give a shit about Ingmar Bergman? It helps to have like the broadest idea of who he was. But this is not a movie about Ingmar Bergman. It really uses him as a conduit to exploring uh, a number of different things. It uses his home as a location um, that's very helpful, but he it's really more for what he represents. Um, if you happen to see one of his movies to prepare for this, I would recommend Through a Glass Darkly, because um, uh, the movie hinges on that a bit. 
Um, but yeah, uh, it, it, I just, I mean, I just love everything this movie is selling. It's a really beautiful reflection on what it means for, you know, similar to the Veneer Part 2 about like a, a person to be an artist, a woman to be an artist, to the dynamic between your work life and your emotional life and uh, people in your life. And uh, I mean, you could go on for days. I, my review of this movie was like 2,000 words and um, hmm. I, I could have gone twice as long uh, if even half of those words needed to be included in the final piece uh that's still i there's a lot to be said about this but it is another one of those movies that actually i think it is kind of available now ifc put it out in october and i think it kind of quickly pivoted to pvod you should be able to find it um you may have to rent it for a small sum but uh it's out there check it out uh it's light it it is heady but always in a sort of emotionally driven way there's it's never too you know, tawdry and melodramatic, but there's uh, fairs, there's uh, impossible loves, there's uh, May December romances dancing, and breakups and dancing, dancing to ABBA. Uh, this is not a slog. So check it out. No, not a slog at all. Yeah, Katie, you saw it. What, what yeah, did you think? and I like. I've, I think I did. I say this podcast. I've never seen an Ingmar Bergman movie. Just haven't. Uh, and I still liked it a lot because it felt like uh, the Bergman is kind of more of an avatar for. Uh, you know, relationships and things that you should share with your partner and don't necessarily, um, it's, it's really, uh, a, a bigger and more, uh, engaging, not engaging, more, um, broadly accessible movie than that might sound. I, I really liked it. It came very close to making my list. And with that, we're going to round into the number ones because Katie's number two pick is also the number one pick that I share with David early. Whoa! I think since this movie is sort of about, uh, to a certain degree, what toxic masculinity can do to you, I think we should let Katie kick <laughs> off the power of the dog. I love a story about toxic masculinity, and I love a Western, and uh, those things combine beautifully in many movies, but also the power of the dog, um, which I know we have talked about, and I feel like I have talked about a lot. It's stuck with me. It is a movie about details that add up into something. I think we we're talking about the lost daughter in this way too, where Jane Campion uh, finds close-ups and eye movements and a hand in place in a certain way that tell an entire story. Um, and you've got a movie about characters who don't say a lot, like a lot happens in this movie in what people are refusing to say to each other. And she captures that so well of this family uh, kind of assembled together on this Montana ranch where Benedict Cumberbatch is uh, this really uh, terrible, mean person who is determined to make the life of Kirsten Dunst miserable because she dared marry his brother and what is fucking him up and what has made him such a mean person is somewhat explored. It's not entirely explained by backstory, but a part of it's in there. Um, and then Cody no, no Bronco Henry erasure on this podcast. I mean, <laughs> I don't think Bronco Henry is the entire reason that Phil Burmick turns out to be an no. asshole, but uh, he certainly gets some of the blame. Um, and then Cody Mr. McMahon, who I guess is going to win an Oscar, probably uh, for playing Peter, the uh, he's very good son. He's really good in this movie. I mean, <laughs> I think the ensemble is so good, and I think Benedict Cumberbatch is really amazing in it. That like for Cody Smith McPhee to be the one person who wins an award would be like okay, th- like that's fine. That's but actually really funny because I feel the opposite. I mean, I, I really? think Benedict Cumberbatch is kind of playing an obvious role. This movie did not make my list. I was a little underwhelmed by it, probably because I'm coming like way late. The power of the dog. Probably because you suck. Probably yeah, I, suck. I love Jake Campion. I mean, I think the movie is beautiful, but I actually like Cody Smith McPhee is giving the best performance. He's just like he has a lot of a lot of gears are turning in his head as he he's you know savvier than he appears to be. He's mocked by people, but he's manipulating everyone. He's just like he's a smart guy. 
challenging he did, performance. He definitely- he, he, his physicality is believable from beginning to end, where I feel like I, I, I ease into Benedict Cumberbatch's physicality in this movie. They're both great, but like Cody Smith McPhee's like arched person whose like shoulders are kind of up until like he's doing something he actually wants to do. I think there's a lot of subtlety here that, that's really great. And especially with like, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character how much I feel like I know about his backstory, even though as Katie pointed out, there isn't a lot very specifically told. I just yeah. feel like the interior life of that character, um, well, more his interior pain uh, shows through a lot more than it, it has to on the page, which is uh, kind of amazing. I mean, there are only so many like Mishima-like uh, ritualistic masturbation scenes involving like an old piece of cloth in the woods mm-hmm. that you need to sort of understand <laughs> where a character is coming from. Mm-hmm. Like s- similar to the Green Knight, I suppose. Yeah, depending the, on ah. what you mean in the woods. Uh, but yeah, uh, power of the dog. I think I think we all we all seem to really dig it, but that might be. The most predictable thing about the number ones for me and David, because the other two, let me tell you, I was surprised in both of you. Wait, why did you guys pick patches, this as your- wait, Patches but, but wait, went with Aquaman oh, again. Hold on, hold on. Why did you guys pick this as your number one movie of the year? Uh, because it was the best movie of the year. Right oh, okay. after I yeah. saw it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Right, right after I saw it, uh, I thought two things. One was, I can't wait to watch this again because I need to hear that opening monologue again. I had no idea it was going to be so consequential. Mm. and. Two was that felt like a complete movie that played me like a fucking fiddle. The entire time yeah. I was waiting for it to be something that it was never going to be. And then when it clicked in, like I, I David, you made reference to a couple of other movies on your list that, you know, the last 30 seconds of the last couple of frames really make the movie. This one just <laughs> clicks into a perfect little puzzle box. It sure yeah, does. In a way, right at the end. But it's not encouraging uh, yeah, I, you to solve it. It's just you, you no. like you get to the end and you're like, oh, every single there's not a, a bit of fat Everything here. Every matters. single thing. Right. Added yeah. There is a lot whole... of there are a lot of moments that sort of feel like stray thoughts while you're watching it the first time through that you sort of file away and you're like, okay, that was interesting, and then you realize that there really wasn't a hair out of place mm-hmm. uh, the entire time. Um, and it may be, it may be the only movie I can think of. I mean, there must be another example or two. But the only movie I can think of off the top of my head that has an opening narration, no other narration in the film, mm. and that in hindsight doesn't feel like that opening narration was just paving over bad storytelling. Because mm. in nine, mm. 99 out of 100 cases, that's usually just a, a post-production patch over something that was uh, miffed in the actual storytelling. And here it is just extraordinary. And uh, yeah, I mean, the kind of atypical choice that defines a lot of what Gene Campion is doing here in this very Shiv-like and, and poisoned, uh, but really kind of beautiful. I mean, I, there's no moment in a film that I found more sort of heart-tugging and, and bittersweet this year than, uh, than I always want to call him Landry. Um, Jesse Plemons. Jesse character, just you know, his quiet reserve, the sort of nicer, demure brother, um, and you, you go back and forth over agonizing whether he knows really his brother and the full extent of his pathology and uh and what he is going through um and how much he's a patsy and how much he's just um like that's who he is but there's this moment where he just throws a napkin over his arm 
and mm. helps out Kirsten Dunst's character, who he eventually marries. And uh, or maybe this is after they married. I can't quite recall. But no, it's it's, it's like it's the first. So, it's his first gesture toward her. It's really yeah, it's, oh, it's so affecting, and it's it's it speaks so many volumes about who these men are and what they prioritize. And um, yeah, and just like uh, it, and how they express themselves. And it is a film in which these characters are constantly expressing who they are um, and looking for someone to pick up what they're throwing down and, and get at the same wavelength and. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character, and, and I think we've said in a previous episode, I, I've said, and I think others may have agreed with me, that this is an actor never really quite clicked with me and was so remarkable to be so blown away by a performance of his because that felt like it was not going to be a thing that happened. Um, but he uh, is extraordinary in this movie, and he his desperation for someone else and his shock at someone else understanding what the title of the movie ends up meaning to him is speaking this language, having being this headspace, understanding his secret at a time, you know, I don't want to say too much, but um, it's it's all so clean and expressive and well done. And it's taken a very, uh, very like carved text. I mean, the, the novel is is really whittled down within an inch of its life and it's very you know, cut down to the bone. And the movie maintains that quality while also bringing sort of an emotional lushness to it and also uh, maintains the, the shift like stab at the end, which makes it so sort of uh, grinningly effective um, and it's just performed to perfection. And, you know, Monument Valley is great and all, but maybe every Western ever made should be shot in New Zealand. I don't know. Uh, and John <laughs> Greenwood just we learned this from Sweet flexing like crazy. Yeah, uh, and Ari Wagner again to you know go to all oh, the yeah. way back to the beginning of this episode, um, shooting the shit out of a very, very, very different movie from Zola. Uh, yeah, God, Power of the Dog rules. Jane Campion is back, and of course, if you watched and loved both seasons of Top of the Lake, she never quite went away, but uh, brings it. Which and brings- she just won the coveted and prestigious uh, Golden Globe. We for, don't have to keep talking about the best yeah, film. Uh, there, it takes forty-three muscles to to laugh, and uh, <laughs> Power of the Dog taught us that smiling and cyanide are the best medicine. <laughs> uh, all right, that brings us to our our another number one picks. And like, I'm very proud of of all of my podcasters for these original and uh, excellent movies. That I don't think are going to be at the number ones for anybody else, but that's why I love it. Patches, what's your number one movie of 2021? It's going to be The Matrix Resurrections. Wow. I can't wow. quit. I mean, you took the red pill. Red one, blue one. Yeah, red one I means you're on board. Is that, is I, that what the I took the red pill. I'm, I'm escaping The Matrix. Um, yeah, I mean, the best time I had at a movie theater this year, have, didn't go to the movie theater that often this year but was really fortunate to see this movie on a giant IMAX screen um rewatched a bit of it this week in the lead up to this podcast was really struck by a line from um by Neil Patrick Harris's the analyst when he's describing to a caught in slow motion neo just talking about like why the matrix is thriving again um and how people today you know, feed on fiction more than fact and desire and fear, baby. Just give the people what they want. And it feels like the damning quote of 
of the year on so many levels. Um, you know, for all the commercial satire packed in the front of this movie, um, I think the Matrix Resurrection is going to be my number one pick because of, of the romantic viciousness of its second half. Uh, I remember seeing the first Matrix movies. You know, the idea that we were in a simulation, that we were in a trap. I mean, it was mind blowing. Um, and there were obviously metaphors there. We were talking about the Bush era earlier. Uh, the lies and the deceit of America were apparent then and uh, more visible now than ever. Um, but I think after living through Bush and living through Obama and the placation of the Obama era and the dystopia of Trump, and now we live in a totally different matrix of idiocy and and ignorance. It's unparalleled thanks to technology today. For Lana Wachowski to be able to look at that and, and reconsider the Matrix, consider this trap that we've built, um, and just giving the biggest no-fucks swing to do it and, and to be optimistic in the end. Love and connection can save us. I just melted in my seat watching this movie. Technically, it's amazing. I, I don't want to wade too much into the like discourse and be defensive because I just think the movie is beautiful. I think the crisp location photography is beautiful beautiful the kind of slow motion carvaggio set pieces it's not like an action forward movie it's just a dynamic one and i think the performances are dynamite from like keanu kind of dialing back down to being the dizzied observer and jonathan groff being getting to be sinister jada pickett smith kind of being like post-apocalyptic red table mom mode um and then just like <laughs> jessica henwick and yaya abdul looking sick as hell. And then Carrie Ann Moss is like to reclaim this character and, and prop her up at an important moment. I also love her line. You used the kids against me. like this whole, all of our movies are kid centric. I'm realizing. Um, and for her <laughs> to snap back lost daughter style and be like, fuck these kids. I'm Trinity. Um, and, and kicking that fakeness to the curb. I just, I did not have more fun at a movie this year. And I was not provoked more buy a movie this year it's exactly what i want out of big pop art it's so so successful against all odds also kujaku was in it and sabebe and <laughs> i didn't see any other movies with sabebe and kujaku in it so fuck you guys <laughs> i mean it's hard to argue with any of those points i suppose <laughs> wait david uh, the matrix was on your list far down uh, the Matrix was not even that far down. I think it was like number fifteen or something like that. Right. I, uh, I I echo everything Patches just said. Um, I've written at length about this movie, and I think we talked about it not all we that did, long ago did. in a very incoherent episode last week. Uh, <laughs> Matrix was that last week? Resurrections oh. fucking rules. It was two and, weeks ago now. I've been in my um, COVID chamber for so long. <laughs> I, I think this is probably going to be the the end of the Matrix as we know it. Oh yeah, uh, at well. least for the next. 20 years or so. Um, I mean, Catrix. never say never in, in this Hollywood. And the Catrix is always around the corner. Uh, but uh, what a way to go out. Uh, I, I really love this movie. Patches told me before I saw it, and I was hearing so much negative reaction, that it was by far, clearly, the second best Matrix movie. Um, it's ar apples and oranges, considering the, the role that the first movie played in sort of this you know, paradigm shift in, in Hollywood and the way that we think about these things and this sort of the ultimate millennial work of art, not millennial, the generation, but it's sort of the end of one era and the birth of another. Um, so I don't know if I can compare this to that, but I, I, this movie certainly brought me as much joy and may end up being my favorite, you know, warts and all for 
how radical and, and satisfying and fun and destructive it is to the concept of what a blockbuster movie should and has to be. I loved it. I do like a signal disruption. Although maybe there is actually more in common uh, than we think initially between Patch's pick and Katie's pick. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Foxcatcher. <laughs> well, before Dave teased me up, I thought about Foxcatcher as I was trying to figure out really? what is the uh, what my top movie of the year. Because I think I have often picked uh, Big Old Fat Downers as my number one movies of the year. I know Jackie <laughs> was my number one one year. I truly don't know. I guess it was probably Nomadland last year. Um, and I am speaking now from uh, yet another COVID lockdown because we had a positive case in my house and it's experiences happen uh, many times over the last couple, uh, two years now where it's been me and my kids or me and my husband and my kids and kind of the four of us like trying to go on a hike or trying to drive down the road in the sense that the entire outside world was kind of separate from us and we had to band together to get through it. And I put Mitchell's versus Machines as my number one movie. That's awesome. Because it has lingered in my heart because of that. And also because Charlie, who we talked about, who's five, has watched it with me and loves it. And watching it with him has brought me immense joy. It's such a lovely- Conan O'Brien giving the Richard Ayoade supporting (laughs) turn of (laughs) uh, this movie. It's It's got unbelievable voice performances. It's a tight and funny movie that is about the internet, but also like- not to the extent that like Zola is or even or even like about it in a way that feels alienating because it's about, you know, people who create videos for YouTube that I don't understand anything about. But it's about families and it's got like a mom character who then turns into a terrifying warrior. And one of the funniest lines in the movie is just the younger kid going, oh, yeah, mom's scary now, which I um like and identify with. Um, and I just rewatched it with Charlie and we both had a great time. And I got to like talk to him about how animation works and about storytelling and kind of watch him put the pieces together about how like they establish something in the beginning and how it comes back in the end and like how joke setup works. Um, so I think it's going to be something that I rewatch a bunch of times and I think it deserves kind of celebration among the best movies of the year for all of the reasons of how this really big, broad story uh, carries so much emotional weight with it. Also, I'm not going to say it's Olivia Coleman's best performance of the year because the lost daughter is great, <laughs> but she is so good as the supervillain uh, phone in this movie, and I want to celebrate her. Specifically. Yeah, I think this movie. Machines. This movie has a brilliant design. It is my favorite animated movie of the year by far. I thought it might be on your list. Honestly, I was surprised it wasn't. I just I, nothing animated made this year. There was a whole bunch of musical and foreign films that sort of crested over for me. But yeah, Mitchell's and the Machines is just like it's it's that Lord and Miller thing where every time I think that like they're they're they've gone the way of making solo or whatever where it's just like they've been ingested into the hollywood uh meat grinder they come out with something that's just like no this is like a cloudy with the chance meatballs this is a mitchell's versus the machines or this is a first lego movie we're just like oh man these guys just know something about but my, i do want to make sure that we give a shout out to michael rianda who wrote and directed it yes. and is yes telling absolutely story. Near and dear to his heart, I think Lord Miller obviously did a lot to push this movie up the mountain and get it made, uh, and their branding has has colored it, and they, their energy, their comic sensibilities are infused into it, but uh, this is a really personal story um, that has that feel to it, um, even if it it's obviously akin to the Lord and Miller brand, um, and I don't want his accomplishment to get lost in the shuffle, but... Uh, um, so good on him. Another yeah. great debut in a year full of them. Yeah. 
And he voices the uh, the younger the son, younger uh, son, the dinosaur. <laughs> like probably, son. probably the broadest comedic performance in the movie, but still a good one too. <laughs> uh, the uh, him that character being introduced, cold calling people in the phone book <laughs> to ask if they want to talk about dinosaurs <laughs> is just it's wonderful. fantastic. Oh, and I think he listens to the podcast. So, oh, hello, Michael. We oh love you. Oh, I, love I did not know that. Uh, I wasn't trying to blow smoke, but I am uh, <laughs> um, happy to shout him out all the same. Uh, a movie that I, I really wanted to put on my list. Um, and also a movie to, you know, look for patterns, hashtag patterns. Um, the character, the budding cinephile in the movie, there are you know, very unexpected references to things like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, to Rainer Werner Fassbinder. She has uh, a Greta Gerwig uh, uh, on uh, her uh, Mount yeah. Rushmore of filmmakers. Um, and and it, it, yeah, and this is all in the first like two minutes of the movie. And I have to say, like, if any movie in recent memory has elevated the four-year consideration campaign into a legitimate art form or something that is worth enjoying as more than a promotional act of of shilling out, uh, it's whoever has been doing the work for this movie. I mean, they have made all they have funneled all of the. They FLC came onto David's territory and made a letterbox page. They made a letterbox <laughs> for her, which is funny. They did I mean, like, like a all- Twitter like Q and A. <laughs> yeah, it's all they all they it all just really nails the the enthusiasm and the spirit and the uh, the guilelessness of like a young open minded cinephile who um, loves this stuff. And it's just like it's it, they've targeted a very particular niche with that marketing. I mean, I guess they know their customers and the people who are voting for these awards and whatnot. But yeah. uh, it's all been very funny and of a piece with the film um, and just. It emphasizes that this is all a labor of love, and you can feel it in every frame. I forgot. Dog looks to like us- bread. I for- oh yeah, uh, dog pig, dog pig, dog pig loaf of bread is a recurring <laughs> joke in our house. Um, I just forgot to circle it back. This is the movie that ends with a character going up to college, and right makes me love it even more. It works every time. <laughs> Tears. Yeah, that's it. We're going off to college now. That was the end of 2021. <laughs> 2022 time. Yeah, yeah. Now it's time to go to college. We're going to college. <laughs> Fighting the world back goes to college. To college. 2022. <laughs> back to college. Our, our Animal House directed video movie. That would be. Uh, <laughs> we can. We can make that. They are all living in the house, taking their core classes again. Wow. <laughs> Does great. Dave remember math? Who knows? Not, uh, no, not a chance. <laughs> all right, I think that's gonna do it for our top tens 2021, which means we're good for probably another 12 months thereabouts. Until our next episode of the regular podcast, why don't you tell people where they can find you around the internet? Let's start this week with Katie Ridge. Ooh, uh, you can find me at Vanity Fair and on the Little Goldman podcast and uh, walking around town with my uh, phone case, which has stickers of Deborah Bot 5000 and Eric, uh, the robots from Mitchell versus Machines on it, which I love. Oh, and hey. I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich. Sorry. Oh, that might be important. Although, <laughs> did- do we want to encourage our people to go on Twitter anymore? I don't know. I'm uh, go and go and tweet at us at FITWR. I don't know. Go on Twitter good. if you want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to go on Twitter, you know, if you want to go on Twitter, I suppose we should be there. Yeah. How about David Ehrlich? What up? Uh, hi, I'm David. I'm so tired. Uh, I'm on Twitter, David Ehrlich. Uh, I talked a lot in this episode about my uh, year-end list, which I released in the form of a video, which has a fundraiser attached to it. Um, which I would encourage you to check out. Uh, you can see the other movies that I wanted to highlight this year and that I loved, if you so care, and you don't have to hear my awful voice uh, while doing so. Um, that's why I like making those videos, that I can completely divorce the, the, the physical elements of myself from uh, 
from the writing um, and uh, from the creation of it, and it could just be the sort of thing that exists independently, and people seem to enjoy that, imagine that. Uh, but, uh, so you can check that out. You can find all of us together on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. Usually, at the start of every episode, we read our reviews, uh, good, bad, anywhere in between, live on the air. Um, and if we don't have any new reviews, we punish our listeners by talking for five minutes about the gotcha mobile game Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. That threat is real, it is terrible, and we will do it again, unless you go on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room, and leave us a review. Matt Patches. Matt Patches, deputy editor over at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. But don't want to go on Twitter. I'm gonna try and do Letterbox again this year. A lot of people Ooh, follow me resolution. on Letterbox, so I feel every time I get like a ping that someone new has followed me on Letterbox, I feel like I might have to go back. I feel like you're not serving your constituents. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna go back. I don't know. Oh, that might peter out. I like that but we'll see so I think I'm Mr. Patches on Letterboxd and I'm Dave Gonzalez you can follow me on Twitter at DA7E I'm also on Letterboxd as DA7E which I reviewed one movie it was Clash of the Titans and it was March 10 years ago so I'm thinking this March I might review my second movie on Letterboxd and just keep up you know once every like decade I'll review a movie on Letterboxd that seems fine with me Maybe I'll finally get around to seeing uh, Scream 5 by the time March comes around. Who knows? Uh, you could, yeah, follow me on Twitter, like I said. You could follow us on Twitter at FITWR. You could email us at FITWR.podcast at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in the normal episode next week. All shit, we on the east side. I'm done.